Activation and Discretion Warning. This episode contains explicit and graphic descriptions of sexual assault and rape. Caution and action is required. This episode is not for children. Please use extreme discretion in listening to this episode, and if you are activated or triggered and need help, call the National Sexual Assault Telephone Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE. That's one 800 656 4673. One of the reasons that I feel comfortable and willing to have this conversation is because people just don't hear people talking about the fact that these things happened to them. And because they don't, they don't have a way to figure out how to start talking about their experiences to other people and begin that process of healing. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Sexual Assault Survivor Stories, the SAS podcast. I'm glad you're here. You've just tuned into one of the most important podcasts that you may ever listen to, because the purpose of this podcast is to provide a safe space for victims and survivors of rape and sexual assault to share their stories and connect with others who've been through similar experiences. However, there are other important aspects to this podcast, community, education, and support. I believe that sharing our stories is one of the most important steps to healing, and my hope is that the SAS podcast will help victims and survivors feel less alone and more empowered. And my ultimate goal is to provide all of my listeners with insights, resources, and a supportive space where empathy, compassion, and understanding thrive. My commitment is to being there for all my listeners. I'm your host, Dave Markell, coming to you from the Podblog Studio in St. George, Utah, and I'm here each week talking to victims and survivors or interviewing experts and professionals in order to not only gain insights and information to help us on our healing path, but also to provide an education on being trauma-informed, working to help bring justice to victims and survivors of rape and sexual assault. Whether you're aware of it or not, we all know someone whose life has been impacted by rape or sexual assault. So I encourage everyone to listen to this podcast. Whatever your experience is with rape or sexual assault, you are not alone, and we are all here for each other. Thank you again for being here. Hi, everyone. This is episode 55, and it is the second part of my interview with my good friend and colleague, Alan Manwaring. If you haven't heard it already, I encourage you to listen to last week's episode as Alan initiated the telling of his experience of being the victim of childhood sexual assault by his sixth grade teacher and several of that teacher's past students. And I want to emphasize what a difficult process it is for anyone who's been the victim of rape or sexual assault to tell the details of the horrific story. As with all my previous guests, the auditory impact of the trauma of their rape or sexual assault is recognizable. And I want to point out that a common indicator of trauma is difficulty in telling of the experience, often evidenced by long pauses. This is due to the fact that trauma interferes with declarative memory, the telling of the experience. You hear this in Alan's retelling of his rape experience. I mention this by way of not only explanation, but also as an education to those who may not understand why those long pauses happen. 
I encourage you to be compassionate and understanding in your listening of Alan's experience. Scientific research tells us that the sexual abuse of boys is common, underreported, underrecognized, and undertreated. That's one of the reasons I'm so impressed with the courage and strength that Alan exhibited in choosing to tell his story here, because I want to help bring justice to victims and survivors of rape and sexual assault. A big part of that process is naming the problem, describing the problem in detail, and addressing the remedies to the prevalence. We join Alan's story with a recap of the last few sentences of Alan's last episode. Here's Alan. He'd get right up to my face, look at me, and he would just say, Alan, you are so beautiful. You are so beautiful. Your blue eyes are so beautiful. And his, his hands would be right there, right there. And I remember feeling so uncomfortable. That's one of the experiences that I think back on with the most uncomfortableness. Anyway, I just, I, I find that to be interesting too, as far as just things that I think back on or feelings that I have on feeling repulsion and anyway. As you describe that, and I'm picturing it and looking into your face and your eyes while you're talking about it, I am so right there with you in the terms of repulsiveness because you think about all the other things that were done, having someone show you their penis and then coupling that with knowing that those people that were showing you those things and doing those things to you were intimately related to that teacher yeah. and then have him do that to your face and put his so close to yours just coupled with those feelings of wrongness that yeah. you knew this does not feel comfortable this is right. not something i'm enjoying right as you know you know i've talked enough to know that i'd I have a really hard time talking and describing, you know, the, the stuff that would happen. Um, you know, I think it's important to put in context, if it isn't clear already, um, that, you know, these... situations where, you know, he would show me his penis and then explain about how important it was to get fluids and things like that. I mean, these were things where he would evolve into, like, he would have me put my mouth around his dick and draw his fluids. And then when I'm talking about the things that would occur later on at that overnight trip, for example, in the tents, when he was showing me how fluids would go in other ways, that was the first time that he would actually put himself inside me. So the kinds of things that would happen and all these things evolve into were I was being penetrated on a fairly regular basis by the end of that year. And there were other things that would go on in that whole process too that I find so bizarre and 
But I, yeah, I, I just wanted to be clear in the context that one of the reasons that I love that book so much that James Rhodes wrote and that one quote that I love so much about what he said, abuse is when the police officer down the street tells you to, the words he uses is to fuck off because that's abuse. And he says what happened to him was rape. And he says when a 45-year-old man sticks his dick in your ass, that is rape. And I hate using those kinds of words. But anyway, um, and his whole point is, you know, it's important to call things what they are. And in my situation, that's what it was. And that's just what it was. So I think that's the reason I think that I'm also so haunted or traumatized about the other feelings from this kind of thing where the, with the face right up to your nose being told you're beautiful and, and all that stuff. I just find it interesting that that kind of experience is to me equally, if not even more sometimes, haunting than having somebody put themselves inside me from the backside. Anyway, I, I just have always found that to be an interesting concept. And I think this speaks to some of the issues that we've talked about in terms of having these intellectual and feeling understandings try to connect more all the time, including like sex versus intimacy. Seventh grade, for example, I go to a different school. Elementary school's over, and I go, I go to a junior high school that's not the same school anymore. Through junior high school, high school, I didn't want to date. I had no desire to date. I wasn't attracted to women. I wasn't attracted to men. I wasn't attracted to anything. I, I, I didn't want to do that stuff. I, I, of course, I would date. I'd go on dates. And, and, and this will actually continue in college. I think that that speaks to the issues of separating and confusing the experiences then to what real intimacy and love are or should be. That's the other thing I find so interesting is I, I don't really think until I really started going through therapy and addressing these things in the last seven or eight years, I don't think I've really sat down and really put dots together so much and really sat down and thought to myself, okay, you know, when I was in high school or whatever and had no, no, no attraction to anything like that, um, why would that be? I don't think that in high school I was thinking that that was because of that stuff from before. I just don't think I was thinking about it. I just don't think I was yeah. thinking. I mean, and it's not that you don't put that stuff out of your mind because you, I mean, and everyone reacts to these things so differently. Like when I'm speaking, I'm always only speaking of my experience. And I don't know if this is a male thing or if it's whatever, but it doesn't surprise me that so many guys who have experienced these things when they were kids, don't talk about it. Don't share that with people. They don't 
try to deal with it or try to go through therapy to find healing until way later, if, if at all. I mean, if at all. And I guess my whole point of that is that I don't think I really thought about that. I just think in hindsight, I think back and think, oh, that's the way I felt. Talking about these types of things, even though you're not talking to a therapist, I'm not a therapist. No. <laughs> it's therapeutic. Yeah, absolutely okay. it is. And I don't know if there's a psychologist or a therapist in your men's group, but what you're doing when you get together is therapy sure. in the sense that it's therapeutic, whether Absolutely. there's someone there that's a professional or not, right? it's still therapeutic. And I think what's important to understand is that as we talk about this, we are doing a lot of analysis of feelings and analysis of thought processes cognitively and emotionally. What's important for me as a host of a podcast like this is that I am so appreciative of you and the other guests who've been on this show that are victims and survivors who are willing to talk about it because as you said, as individual as everybody is, there are commonalities in all of this that other victims and survivors need to hear from the guests that are on this show to feel less isolated, right? to feel that commonality, to feel that camaraderie, and to maybe listen to the commentary between you and I analytically about all this because it helps them process some of the questions in their own mind. Why do I feel this way? Right. Why does this keep coming up? Why does something non-sexual feel more intrusive and harmful or as harmful yeah. as the sexual aspect? Right. Contextually, even the ability to talk about it and what you just brought up, especially with men, we don't talk about this stuff. Right. Part of that is socialization and what our upbringing taught us about masculinity. Part of it is hormonal because testosterone does things differently than estrogen does in the thinking process and in the reactive process. Mm -hmm. But another really interesting part of this, and this crosses all genders, is that trauma interferes with talking, with what neuroscientists would call declarative memory. That's what we're talking about here is the memories that you're having. It's really hard to talk about certain memories. Yeah, it is. And trauma memories are some of the hardest memories to talk about. Yeah, they are. Because of the brain function. Yeah. There is a part of our brains that it allows speech to occur. Trauma interferes with that part of the brain. And then when you combine that with gender and socialization and nurture and hormones and everything else, it, I think, exacerbates and amplifies the issue of being able to talk. Yeah, absolutely. What you're saying about the value of talking about these things and discovering that you're not alone and discovering that other people have had maybe not the exact same experience, but certainly similar experiences is so important in bringing together those intellectual understandings versus the way you feel about certain things, like whether it's your fault or not. And learning of others' experiences and hearing of others' experiences and knowing that 
you weren't the only person that had these kinds of experiences, and so therefore you weren't as stupid as you thought you were, is one of the most important components of bringing together your, your intellectual understanding and your emotional understanding is not your fault. And you identified this a minute ago when you're saying that we may not have all of the same exact experiences, but there's a real commonality in terms of feeling. That's so important to find that understanding and that commonality and to experience that and to feel that. Yeah, I mean, that's key. That's why it's so valuable to have these kinds of conversations. Right. And have the kind of conversations that you have in group therapy or in individual therapy or in these retreats that men's healing does and things like that. It's, that's why that is such an intricate part of healing. Yeah. And I think one of the major differences between what you and I are doing right here, which is therapeutic as, it, sure. as we've talked about, and, and therapy itself, is that I think a therapist then can take those commonalities that we're identifying and talking about and then give therapeutic input and suggestions and ideas that would say this is what you do with it. Right. Try to tell you, okay, now that you've identified these things, now that you've spoken about them, here's what needs to happen next. I, I talk about it all the time, and you and I were talking about it earlier tonight. Bessel van der Kolk goes pretty deeply into some of the therapeutic measures that he has suggested and tried and failed and used and found success with, but I would never repeat those to anyone. Right. And I don't think you would either. No. But that's not the process that no. we're in with this podcast. Exactly. I think it's exactly. just what we have done here is what I intend for this platform to be, is that realization that just talking about this is therapeutic. Yeah, I agree. And, and I don't have to be a therapist to tell you that you're going to gain something beneficial from being able to get to the point where you can talk about it. Right. I've had so many guests, Alan, including you, who've said, man, now that I've talked about it, I feel so much better. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I yeah. feel such a relief. And it's been a huge step for some people to say, I've grown. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Right? And I see that in you. Oh, just absolutely. From last October yeah. Yeah. is when you and I met. Yeah. And it was shortly, I, I think probably within a week that oh, you yes. sent me your written story. Right. And the changes that yeah. you and I have come through yeah. together yeah. and grown yeah. is night and day. Yeah, it is. I attribute that to trust and familiarity and being comfortable because you can't talk about these things with somebody that you don't trust. And I mean, I know, you know, we're sitting here in a studio kind of environment with earphones on and all these kinds of things right now. But this conversation would not occur in any environment had we not had the journey we've had for the last year in terms of developing trust and familiarity and respect. It's and, not hard for yeah. me to forget that I'm wearing headphones and talking into a yeah. microphone and sitting yeah. in front of a computer that's recording all yeah. this because... To me, this is just a conversation it's between a conversation. Alan and Dave. Yeah, exactly. And it is amazing to me how different you and I are. Yeah. yeah. And it's not just trust. I'm a thousand percent convinced mm -hmm. that part of the process of being trauma-informed, and I've said this before, my yeah. audience will know what I'm talking about, right. 
is that empathic concept and that empathic approach. If you trust somebody, I think that other person is trusted because they know that they're going to be met with an empathic response. Right. Like for me to hear these things from you, you wouldn't go there if for the past year, all you'd heard from me every time you brought this kind of thing up was, well, it's your own dang fault. Right. What were you (laughs) thinking? What were you thinking? Why didn't you stop that? I mean, those are the kinds of things wondering and scratching my own head about why domestic violence victims stayed and why sex assault victims didn't fight back. Right. Not knowing anything about tonic immobility or tonic collapse, yet even though it wasn't malicious, it just was not empathic, so it was wrong. Yeah. It it was just wrong of me to have that response because I wasn't being empathic. All I knew was that I'm the guy wearing the badge and I'm the one asking the questions. Right. And sorry, but all I need is who, what, why, when, where, how. Yeah. And that is is such an improper, harmful, destructive even approach. Yeah, true. Absolutely true. I'm going to add one part to that. What you're saying also reminds me of one of the things that James Rhodes says in his book, Instrumental, when he talks about how he would tell people, you know, when he was an adult about what had happened to him when he was a child. And he would get the response, well, James, you were such a beautiful child, as if it's your fault. It's your fault because you're a beautiful child. So it's your fault. And it's, you know, it wasn't them like saying, you know, it's your fault, you know, da, 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 why didn't you stop this and blah, blah. But it's still, and, and they probably even think that they're being, you know, sort of empathic or being kind by saying that right (laughs) but they're not (laughs) because in no way shape or form do you want feedback from people who are trying to be kind to you in hearing your story to imply any kind of fault yeah from you absolutely and because it just isn't real and when i mean he, he was like five and six years old even way younger than i was and Anyway, but it's just, yeah, you just don't want to hear that. That's not a, that's so non-productive and so destructive. Yeah. Very destructive. And uh, anyway, but the other thing I got to say about what you were just saying a second ago is that one of the, the reasons that I feel comfortable and willing to have this conversation with you in this setting is because people just don't hear people talking about the fact that these things happened to them. And because they don't, they don't have a way to figure out how to start talking about their experiences to other people and begin that process of healing. You always hear that kids who were abused are kids who were neglected, kids who came from bad families, kids who came from lower socioeconomic situations kids who came from families who were not educated, and so on and so on. And that's just not true. And so one of the things that I hope that occurs from these conversations is that people will understand that these things happen to kids who have very educated parents, who came from very educated backgrounds, who are very educated themselves now, and not from families who were abusive 
I think that's one of the myths of this whole thing is that this only happens to these kinds of people and it doesn't. It happens to lots of kinds of people from across the spectrum, including people who come from fairly good backgrounds. And love. And love. And that's and I, love. Yeah. yeah. You, you hit love. the nail on the head when you said that. You know, the the misconception yeah. one of the myths of all of this is that yes, the victims are from these backgrounds, but the one that hit me the hardest was they must come from homes where abuse is occurring yeah. and they're neglected. And right. that's the farthest thing from the truth in yes. your life. Yeah, absolutely. And in my life. Yeah. And in fact, some of my abuse came from my mother, mm-hmm. who I'm not even sure she considered what she was doing sexual abuse yeah. or a sexual assault because it was her way of expressing physical and emotional love to her son. Right that's where a lot of incest comes from yeah i'm sure it does and you really hit the nail on the head when you brought all that up with me because it speaks to the prevalence of sexual assault both in the child world and in the adult world i think people have these misconceptions and myths floating around in their heads and one of the big ones is that it doesn't happen very often but right. that if it does happen, it's because of the criteria you mentioned. Right. It's so erroneously off base. It's so wrong. And tends to strengthen the rape culture. Right. I agree. And I don't know if like one of the reasons that I waited so long in my life to deal with all this kind of stuff was because I probably had those perceptions too. And I'm like, oh, I'm not going to talk about this. I mean, good grief, you know, I'm a well-educated person and these things don't happen to well-educated people. And if I talk about this, then, I mean, anyway. What will people think? Yeah, what will people what think? What will people think of yeah, me? Right, exactly. I mean, I'll just yeah. take a lower status yeah. in their perception of sure, me. Sure, exactly. Because they'll know that I was actually, yeah. which is exactly the mindset that perpetrators have in who they choose to assault. Mm-hmm. When I was working for the military, that was one of the things that a colleague of mine brought up was, who is a perpetrator going to more likely assault in the military? Are they going to more likely assault a private or a general? Because the general's not going to say, happened to me, because it never happens to them. <laughs> Nothing bad ever happens never to a bad, general. Exactly, that's right. And if that did, yeah. what would your... What would your, everyone else think about you? You're not, you're not worthy to be a general. Yeah, I think understanding perpetrator mentality is as important as understanding victim and survivor mentality and emotions. There's a lot to understand dynamically on both sides. Yeah. And I think it's high time that we make these podcasts. We need to talk about it. That's why I'm sitting here (laughs) is because I just, you know, I just feel that if 20 years ago or if 30 years ago, people have been talking about these things in the context that we're talking about them. I may have had a head start on my healing process. (laughs) That's the other part of my story, I guess, is that I never in a million years would have believed that what happened to me would have happened to anyone else. That reminds me of something else that someone said recently to me. I can't remember what the context was. Having had gone through these things, you never really know what, what causes what in your life. But I do know that 
for whatever reason, I have felt very isolated my entire life, and I have felt very alone. And I know that that feeling of alone is a very common feeling among those of us who have experienced these things. That is a very normal feeling. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up. I think you can know cognitively that trauma is isolating and makes you feel alone. But even when you know that as an adult, even as you're acknowledging it, it doesn't make the aloneness go away. I think it does eventually, but it's it's really a, a slow adaptive process right. to understand emotionally that you are not alone. And it just struck me as a remembrance that that's why psychologically speaking in therapy, group therapy is so important. Yes, it is. That's one of the biggest reasons is because you don't feel alone. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you finally see and hear and feel from other people that they have experienced the same kinds of things, maybe not exact as I always say, but similar and, 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 uh, and similar enough. That's, that is so profound and helpful. Yeah. Next time, I want to talk about some of the triggering things that have happened to me in my life. I think have been really interesting. That would be awesome. It doesn't happen very often. We'll save that for another day. Mm-hmm. Alan, thank you. Thank you. It's been fantastic for me, too. Like we say, you always grow from talking about these things. So I appreciate the opportunity. I appreciate you taking advantage of the opportunity and honoring me and giving me the privilege of sitting here with you and talking about these things. Thank you. That does it for another episode of Sexual Assault Survivor Stories, the SAS podcast. I talk to Alan several times a week, and I've already told him numerous times how much I appreciate his willingness and strength in telling of his horrific experience of being raped as a young boy of only 11 years of age. So he knows my heart and appreciation are with him. But I also want to make sure that you all know what a courageous step this was for Alan. He's already reached out to me and expressed that the effect of telling his story had its adverse effects on his mentality, but that he is nonetheless contented appreciative that he was able to use this platform to share his experience so that other people who've been through a similar experience might feel comfort in knowing that they are not alone. We both agreed that being able to talk about this insidious betrayal and depravity is a tremendous part of helping to bring justice to victims and survivors of rape and sexual assault. Thank you again for being here and please join me again next week for another episode of Sexual Assault Survivor Stories. Remember to start by believing, because we all know someone whose life has been affected by rape or sexual assault, and this is an excellent way to bring justice to victims and survivors. We'll see you next week.